Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this month's episode number 40, Asymptomatic Hypertension and Hypertensive Emergencies, we have with us Dr. Joel Yaffe and Dr. Claire Atsima. Dr. Yaffe is an emergency physician at the University Health Network in Toronto. He's the program director for the FRCP Emergency Medicine Program and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He's also the assistant director of education in the Department of Emergency Medicine at UHN. He's the chair of the U of T EM CME Committee and the director of the University of Toronto's annual update in emergency medicine conference in Whistler, BC. Dr. Atsima is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. She's an adjunct scientist with the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences and an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. She did a research fellowship at UCLA prior to completing her postgraduate training in emergency medicine at the University of Toronto and received a Master's of Science in Epidemiology, also from the University of Toronto. Big announcement. EM Cases will be joining the foam world starting April 1st. That's right. Access to the entire EM Cases library and all future material will be free for all starting April 1st, when we'll also have a brand new website with tons of new features. We'll have easy downloading to phones and tablets, automatic downloading of the EM Cases summaries to phones and tablets with our new app, or to your Evernote book or your Dropbox if you prefer, a section called Next Month on EM Cases, where you can check out the upcoming topic and questions that we'll be asking the experts on the podcast, and a spot where you can ask the experts your burning question. And if it's an awesome question, it'll be answered on the podcast by our experts. We're also now really active on Twitter, which is at EM Cases. That's at capital E, capital M, capital C, lowercase a, s, e, s and have a Google Plus page where we'll be discussing the episode topics, bringing you hot-off-the-press EM articles, and more interactive yummies. For now, please post your questions on the episode page, or even better, on Twitter. So that's enough announcements for this month. Let's get into talking about asymptomatic hypertension. Hypertension is one of the most important preventable contributors to cardiovascular disease and death. In fact, hypertension is currently the number one risk factor for death in the world, and there's an independent risk for hypertension-related cardiovascular death with each 20 over 10 rise in blood pressure above 150. It's also one of the leading risk factors for stroke, heart disease, kidney disease, blindness, and dementia. Outpatient blood pressure control has been shown in RCTs to significantly affect this cardiovascular risk in patients with hypertension. Unfortunately, in the U.S., only about half of the hypertensive population has adequately controlled blood pressure. In Canada, it's a little bit better, with a bit over 65% being adequately controlled. But how does this translate to the ED? The long-term outpatient outcomes literature is not applicable to the ED and we don't have much literature to go on in the ED. So there's likely a wide variety of practice in the eMERGE when it comes to hypertension. 
Which patients need ED workup and treatment of their hypertension? Is asymptomatic hypertension beyond the scope of our practice? Or do we have a responsibility to actively search out and treat hypertension in the ED? We see a ton of these patients. In the U.S. in 2005 alone, there were nearly 3.5 million ED visits related to chronic hypertension. In Ontario, we see about 25,000 ED visits for hypertension based on Dr. Atsuma's soon-to-be-published data. The vast majority of these patients will be asymptomatic, and this poses a conundrum for the ED doc. Many of these patients don't need any ED treatment at all, but some do. Maybe. Then there's the so-called true hypertensive emergencies, aortic dissection, preeclampsia, hypertensive encephalopathy, and the such, where aggressive blood pressure control is essential to minimize morbidity and mortality. And there's a whole slew of other illnesses where hypertension plays a role. Renal failure, ACS, CHF, retinopathy, ICH, subarachnoid hemorrhage, and ischemic stroke, just to name a few. In this episode, with the help of Dr. Joel Yaffe, the Program Director for the FREM Program at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Claire Atsuma, a prominent researcher in cardiovascular disease in the ED, we'll sort through the best literature and expert opinions to find you the key pearls and pitfalls and controversies around asymptomatic hypertension and hypertensive emergencies. All right, so let's jump straight into our first case. The first case is a 52-year-old male who sent in from their family doctor after routine annual checkup with a blood pressure of 185 over 115. He feels well. He denies headache, visual changes, chest pain, shortness of breath, dizziness, or weakness. He denies any illicit drug ingestion and drinks the occasional glass of wine. His past medical history includes diabetes and elevated cholesterol. He has no known history of kidney disease. His vitals are otherwise normal and his neurologic and cardiovascular exams are grossly normal. So let's first start talking about definitions and classification. There's a lot of nomenclature when it comes to hypertension in the ED. There's asymptomatic hypertension, there's severe hypertension, there's hypertensive urgency, there's hypertensive emergency, there's malignant hypertension, there's poorly controlled chronic hypertension, there's elevated blood pressure without a history of hypertension. So it can get really confusing. Can you please, for our listeners, sort through how best to categorize and define hypertension in the ED? Sure. So there's hypertensive emergencies. You know, we've traditionally taught that hypertensive emergencies are hypertension and acute end organ damage. I think it's more complicated than that. I think when you approach a hypertensive emergency, you have to ask yourself three questions. Is there acute end organ damage? Is the dysfunction attributable to the elevated blood pressure or is the elevated blood pressure going to make the dysfunction worse? And is alteration of the blood pressure with pharmacologic treatment necessary to either improve or prevent the worsening of symptoms? And you should ask yourselves why. So if we ask ourselves all of those and then we move on to treat the condition, I think we're going to be safe. And then beyond that, I think there's everything else. There's all the other hypertension issues. And I think what we're going to see in the next little bit is that the number probably doesn't matter. Okay, so there's hypertensive emergencies defined by how you just described those three questions. And there's all the other hypertension-related things that we see in the emergency department, which we'll discuss through the episode. 
and sort out exactly what they are. There's all these different terms that are just confusing, but really in the end, we just have to know what the hypertensive emergencies are and everything else we can take on an individual basis. Now, the definition of hypertension in an outpatient setting is based on up to three separate readings on two or three separate days with the patient in a sitting position, having rested for at least a few minutes. This is impossible to do in the emergency department on one visit, and we all know that the triage blood pressure is going to be higher than the patient's usual resting blood pressure. So, Dr. Yaffe, this is sort of a three-part question. First, what's the optimal timing during the patient's ED visit to be measuring the blood pressure for hypertension screening in patients with an elevated blood pressure at triage? Second, to what degree do anxiety and pain contribute to the blood pressure measurement in the ED? And thirdly, how does the ED blood pressure correlate with the outpatient likelihood of the patient having a diagnosis of essential hypertension? So let's start with what's the optimal time during the patient's visit to be measuring the BP to get an idea of what the most accurate sort of true blood pressure of that patient is. Sure. So I think these are all questions that really lead to the same thing. If somebody is hypertensive in the emergency department, are they going to be hypertensive on the outside? Are we picking up people who have hypertension that's going to be requiring treatment? In terms of the timing, there's a study by Dieterle uh, where they looked at people who presented to the eMERGE. They looked at serial blood pressures in the eMERGE. Uh, they looked at blood pressures uh, in the ambulatory setting post-discharge. Uh, what they found was that there was a drop in systolic blood pressure between the time of entry and for about the next 20 minutes in both the hyper and normotensive groups. They recommended, and I'm not sure how the numbers were crunched, that the best time to look for blood pressure if you want to discriminate between normotensive and hypertensive people is between about 60 to 80 minutes. Certainly, blood pressure does drop from the time of triage. So the second question, Dr. Yaffe, is to what degree do anxiety and pain contribute to the blood pressure measurement in the ED? You know, we kind of intuitively think that when people come to triage, they're anxious, they might be in pain. And once we deal with that, then maybe they don't have any hypertension at all. What does the literature tell us about that? So again, this is probably same question, different form. There is evidence that, that says regardless of how much pain or anxiety a person may feel they have on their admission, a lot of these people are going to be hypertensive later on. Tanabi did some of this and followed people as an outpatient and really could not correlate the degree of hypertension in the eMERGE or thereafter with how much pain or anxiety there was on the eMERGE visit. So you can't just attribute it to pain or anxiety. You need to get some follow-up. So suffice to say that the ED blood pressure in the majority of patients does actually correlate with their likelihood of having essential hypertension as an outpatient. Sure. So if you've repeated the blood pressure after 20 to 60 minutes into their visit and they're still hypertensive, there's a good chance that they're going to be hypertensive as an outpatient and may require treatment. So let's move on to how you would take a history for a patient who presents with a chief complaint of high blood pressure, like our case here. Dr. Etzema, what do you ask on history when patients present with a chief complaint of high blood pressure? In particular, how do you assess for possible end organ damage, triggers for high blood pressure, and secondary causes of hypertension? So 
Before I go into those categories, I just want to establish, first of all, have they had hypertension before? Is this something new for them? Or are they already known to be hypertensive? And if they are, are they taking medications for it? And most importantly, are they actually physically taking the medications? And have they been taking those medications recently? Uh, Next, I want to know if there's any changes to the medications. And then I want to ask about the other most common causes for people with known hypertension to lose control of their blood pressure, which is alcohol, NSAID use, cold medications, steroids, that sort of thing. And then, of course, high salt diet. This isn't, doesn't actually contribute as much as, as many people think from, from what I've read, but certainly if they're being very indulgent with their diet, it's possible that's what's made their blood pressure go up. So I'm going to be asking those things of the people who have a known history of hypertension. If they've never had hypertension before, the next thing I want to know is when was the last time they had their blood pressure checked? Because if it was checked, say, three years ago, they may have had high blood pressure for three years, and this is not in any way urgent, and the last thing I want to do is drop their blood pressure. But if they had a blood pressure checked, you know, three weeks ago, and they're pregnant, obviously, and it was normal at that time, that's a a whole different ballgame that we're dealing with. So I want to establish that first, and then I'll go on to the symptoms kind of with a head-to-toe approach. So starting with your eyes, have they had any visual changes? And then going into the brain, which would be, have you had any nausea or vomiting? headache. These are things that can potentially be, and not always, but can potentially be signs of early hypertensive encephalopathy. So those, those patients often present with kind of carbon monoxide poisoning kind of presentation, except their carbon monoxide isn't high, it's their blood pressure is high, but nausea, vomiting, headache, and confusion. So I want to ask about those things. I also want to ask about stroke symptoms and any localizing signs like weakness or numbness in one arm or leg. So that's kind of the head. Uh, and then I'll move down to the heart which is all the signs of CHF, so shortness of breath, swelling in your ankles, PND, orthopnea. And then, of course, the other uh, big heart issue is uh, an AMI or ischemia, so any chest pain. And then lastly, you want to look at kidneys. Do they have any history of polycystic kidney disease? That's usually a family history of polycystic kidneys. And then just the basic symptoms, have you had any polyuria, uh, noctiuria, some more urinating at nighttime, uh, increased thirst, or hematuria? So those are the symptoms that I'm going to go through. Then lastly, you asked about secondary causes. You know, personally, unless they're having end-organ damage, this isn't really something that I concern myself with. But, you know, for an academic review, the people that I would think about secondary causes are those who are very young, uh, who have high blood pressure, those who have a very poor blood pressure response to drug therapy, and patients uh, who have organ dysfunction that's disproportionate to the duration of their hypertension. So they've only had a short period of hypertension, yet they're in renal failure. Um, So those are the patients that usually the family doctor would think about secondary causes. And when I say secondary causes, we mean uh, renovascular hypertension, which is a fancy way of saying um, bilateral uh, renal artery stenosis, which is throw yourself back to internal medicine rotation. Long, long ago, I vaguely remember discussing that quite a lot. Coarctation of the aorta, so something they've been born with and blood pressure on both arms should help you differentiate that, although, again, not really something that I consider a lot in the emergency department. Cushing syndrome, uh, hyperaldosteronism, uh, and thyroid, parathyroid disease can also do it, and, of course, good old feel. Pheochromocytoma, which we all looked for when we were med students, uh, is certainly on the differential for secondary causes. Great. That was excellent. I mean, I, kind of, I feel inadequate now in my history taking. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Atsuma, that was an, an excellent, thorough review of what we might ask for on history for the patients who, do, who present with elevated blood pressure. 
Dr. Yaffe, let's move on to the physical exam. What do you look for on physical exam for patients who present with elevated BP to assess whether they might have end organ damage caused by chronic hypertension or acute hypertension? And what do you look for to rule out secondary causes? So usually our our patients are going to give us some direction in terms of their history uh, which is going to guide our physical examination. So if a person's hypertension and they've got symptoms of congestive heart failure, our workup is pretty straightforward. Uh, same for CNS symptomatology. So if a person's hypertensive and they've got a headache, um, we're going to go into our headache mode. And in general, the hypertension is just part of the, the overall syndrome. It's not something that is going to be the key to the answer. Chest pain and severe hypertension, I... Uh, might look for signs of aortic dissection, look for an AI murmur. But, you know, the real challenge is to pick up important findings on patients who don't have obvious symptomatology. So in that asymptomatic patient who comes in because their blood pressure is high, uh, what are you going to do? I think there's one thing that I always like to look at. I always look at the fundi in these people. I think that if you see stage three or four retinopathy, which is either retinal hemorrhages uh, and exudates, or papilledema, you're in trouble. I mean, we all know papilledema, you're in trouble. But if you see acute hemorrhages and exudates, that is a hypertensive emergency, and that's going to drive your decision-making. People have looked at bedside ultrasound for measuring optic nerve diameter as a reflection of uh, raised ICP. I'm not sure I've seen any data on how good that is at picking up all causes of hypertensive emergencies, but certainly it's another tool. So fundi for sure. Cardiac exam, we look for signs of congestive heart failure. You know, there's some other rarer things uh, which might be hard to find on, on physical exam. We think about Cushing syndrome, looking for truncal obesity and strii, listening for abdominal bruise uh, in cases of suspected renovascular hypertension. But really, these are going to be rare. Yeah. I have to admit right now that I am terrible at looking at the retinas. Really? You know, I, I do it, and if I have a panophthalmic, great. I think it's very important, and I've looked at thousands of them, and I still don't seem to be getting better. I can manage to pick up um, papilledema, but the stage three, those other exudates and things, if you can do it, great. And the one time that I would really push myself to do it is someone who I'm suspecting hypertensive encephalopathy, because those patients can present early with just the nausea and vomiting that I mentioned earlier and headache. And in those patients, if you catch it early with a stage three signs before stage four being the papilledema, then you can you know, fix things. You need to get imaging before you start dropping the blood pressure because it could actually be a stroke that's causing it. You don't want to drop their blood pressure precipitously in stroke, which we will talk about. So you need to get imaging first, but it can at least you get, get you on the right track early. And so in those patients, I will push for it. But in everyone else, I find it really difficult to look for those stage three signs and symptoms. And in fact, most of the studies that look at the prognosis of those findings and how you're going to do are done with retinal photography and interpreted by ophthalmologists. If you look at how general physicians interpret, um, and that this has been done in studies, it's much, much less accurate. And I'm sure I'm in that group, and I'm sure many of the listeners are in that group. So, you know, there, there's a time that when I really push for it, but other than papilledema, I'm not sure that, you know, we're as good as the uh, retinal photographers and ophthalmologists at, um, and I'm not sure we, we should be. Absolutely. Do Dr. Yaffe, do you have a panoptic in your department? So we have a panoptic, and it's a nice tool. I don't use it 
that often. I don't feel I need it. I will say one thing. I think a lot of physicians underestimate their ability to recognize bad stuff on routine fundoscopy because we never see it. It's very rare, but I work at an eye center. We see lots of eyes. And the fact is that when somebody comes in with a retina that really looks abnormal, it doesn't take much to recognize it. So when you see that retina with hemorrhages and exudates, you're going to look and you're going to see it. Uh, the fact is we don't see that many, and that's why we underestimate our abilities. And I think looking at the fundi takes minutes. Uh, the yield is going to be predictably low because most people do not have the disease we're looking for. But I think when you see it, you're going to know right away. So I, I, do, I do look at the fundi and all of these people. And we're going to talk a little bit more about malignant and accelerated hypertension, but that's going to be your key. So we've talked about the history, we've talked about the physical, let's move on to the diagnostic workup. Dr. Atsuma, with the possibility of occult end organ damage in an asymptomatic hypertensive patient that might not be apparent from history and physical, and the possibility of a secondary cause of hypertension, what diagnostic workup do you do for the patient who presents with elevated blood pressure without any symptoms? In other words, What's the utility of doing routine testing on patients with asymptomatic high blood pressure in the ED? So the most recent ASEP guidelines, 2013 guidelines looking at this, came to the conclusion that in asymptomatic patients, routine screening for acute target organ injury is not required. However, they do concede that in select patient populations, like those with poor follow-up, screening for high creatinine may alter disposition. And these are all grade three recommendations, so they're really based on very little evidence. So the short answer is you don't have to. You absolutely don't have to do any kind of workup in someone who, who you don't think has any reason to pursue those tests. And you would be safe in a court of law saying that because you have the ASAP guidelines, which this is, you know, you're going to be judged against your peers, and this is what they say. The only thing that was a bit odd about this guideline is when you actually read the text, it doesn't seem that congruent to me with the final conclusion that they, I just read out, that, I, that they made. Um, and that's because as you read through the studies, the, the first study they talk about uh, was done by Carras in 2008, and they had three EDs, and they enrolled patients with blood pressures over 180 systolic or 110 diastolic. 83% of those patients were black. And 6% of those patients had clinically meaningful unanticipated test results that changed management. So 6% is, I mean, it's not that high. And then there was another study fairly similar. It was uh, done in 2010. It was in two EDs. 98% of those patients were black. And the diastolic had to be above 100. And 7.2% of those patients had unanticipated results that changed management. But then they conclude that you don't need to do any screening, which seems a little odd to me because we do many things that only have a very small yield, like chest x-rays in ACS patients. Um, Eric Hess in Ottawa did a study looking at how often chest x-rays are helpful in the possible ACS patient, and they found that 6% had abnormalities and about two, just over 2% uh, had a change. Uh, those were, you know, pleural effusion or uh, pulmonary edema or consolidation, something that changed management. So that's 2% we're doing it for, for chest x-rays. It's not quite the same thing, but speculum exams in the vaginal bleed patient, 
um, there was a study in Academic in 2010, and it showed that there's about 6% unexpected results. We do the speculum exam on every badge bleed, and 6% of the time we're going to find something that, that will probably change our management. So if we're accepting that 6 5 6% is enough that we're going to do it for everybody, I mean, maybe we need a clinical decision tool here as well and who we should be doing creatinines on. That's not really my next research project. But, you know, just looking at what else we do, it seems kind of funny that, or odd rather, that 6%, 7% findings here and we're recommending not to do it. So it yeah, depends think, on what I you want to do. I think this is where, where a lot of the controversy comes in, uh, is that some of the guidelines will say quite blanketly that you don't need to do a workup, yet most of the literature does give us a rate of five, six, seven percent that you are going to find something. I guess the question is, when you find something, what does that actually mean for the patient? Mm -hmm. And if we treat that, does it actually change their outcome, which I guess nobody knows. knows. I mean, the problem with a lot of these recommendations is that the cohort of people who come in who have hypertension, it's not a its not a, a homogeneous group. There's all kinds of reasons. We don't know why they came to the eMERGE to begin with. We, you know, we're told they're asymptomatic, but your workup is going to be driven to some degree by whatever symptoms the person had that brought them to the emergency department. So somebody who sprains their ankle and happens to have hypertension is going to be very different from somebody who comes in on multiple medications who says, I don't feel well. Um, so, you know, I, I think the guidelines give us, I think as Claire said, they give us the latitude to use your discretion and work up those who you feel you need to work up. And some you may decide to just refer for follow-up. Yeah. I mean, I generally do an ECG on everyone. If you go to LVH, oh, there you go. It's very specific of signs of LVH on ECG for LVH but it's not very sensitive. So I generally do that. I generally don't do a chest x-ray. Why? Unless there's signs, any kind of signs of CHF or symptoms of CHF, then I will, of course. Um, and the creatinine is usually done for me by the time I see the patient. I probably would. In, but again, just like Joel, Joel said, you know, it would be based on the patient and, and my discretion. So Dr. Yaffe, Dr. Atsuma had mentioned about doing an ECG that she ends up doing them on most patients. What's your take on doing an ECG for the asymptomatic hypertensive patient? Um, I'm a little more selective. I probably do cardiograms on a number of people just because of the nature of their presenting complaint. But uh, if this is truly hypertension that was picked up completely unrelated to the reason for the visit, I probably won't do it. If I find LVH or if I don't find LVH, the follow-up's going to be the same. So it doesn't really drive my decision-making. If I have someone to come in with a blood pressure of 180 on 110 and they come in from their family doctor with that, the family doctor has sent them in because of that. So first you know that the family doctor isn't aware that they don't need to come to the emergency department. So then once you see them, then I feel like it's my responsibility to... Maybe educate the family doctor. I say, I write letters back to them. I write letters to the family doctor. So I will do an ECG, and if I see LVH, then I'll give the patient the ECG. I'll say, there's something on your ECG that is probably not serious, but I would recommend for your family doctor to get an echo. So we've talked about ECGs and chest x-rays. Dr. Yaffe, what about routine blood work, a CBC, creatinine, lights, basic metabolic panel? 
What's your take on whether patients with asymptomatic hypertension need these tests or not? So my take is pretty much the same as the recommendations, which are that routine blood work is not indicated in everybody. You have to be a little bit selective. So you have to look at how well you know your population. If there's a high rate of chronic kidney disease, then maybe you want to do a creatinine. Um, I, I think you have to look at the symptoms. You know, I remember a guy I saw one day, a young guy, came in with the flu. Uh, he was noted to be really hypertensive, seemed to be nothing else but the flu, but I really wasn't happy, so we did some blood work on him. His creatinine was significantly elevated. He had an active urine. He had acute glomerulonephritis. So you really have to let your symptoms drive you. But again, very much the same as with the cardiogram and the x-ray and everything else. If the hypertension is truly an incidental finding, then they need nothing. The exception might be, the exception might be, and I'm a little more liberal with doing your analyses. Um, so Karras' study from, I think it was 2002, he kind of said, if you do a dipstick and there's no protein and no blood, you can feel pretty confident that there won't be acute renal failure as a cause for the hypertension. And I, I do a lot of your analyses, and if there's heavy proteinuria or heavy hematuria, then I'll go on from there. The urinalysis I am less keen on. That study, I think it was only about 140 patients yeah, and 24. Great. So what they did is they looked at these patients with high blood pressure and they gave them all a creatinine as well as a dipstick and looked to see how good the dipstick was at predicting an elevated creatinine, and it got all 24 patients who had an elevated creatinine. The problem with 24 patients is the lower confidence interval is around 84%. So it's possible that it's only 84% sensitive. And then another study uh, that was done on a much larger patient population, just all ED patients, I think about 5,400 patients, they did the same kind of test and they found that it was only about 82% sensitive. So if you really are concerned that they may have renal failure, then you probably shouldn't just go with the urinalysis. But it's a quick and easy test if you want to just do a, a quick look. But it's not going to catch them all. You're going to miss about 15 to 20%. So in terms of screening your asymptomatic hypertensive patient for kidney disease in the emergency department, doing a urine dip is reasonable, but you need to be aware that the sensitivity is maybe around 80 90% exactly. at the highest and so you're not going to be catching everybody, but certainly if you see lots of protein and blood, that's someone who you need to follow up with a creatinine and, and address that. So we've talked about taking a history. We've talked about doing a physical. We've talked about the diagnostic workup and the utility of doing a diagnostic workup in the patient with asymptomatic hypertension. Let's move on to the new JNC guidelines. This was just published online in mid-December 2013 in JAMA, it's been long awaited because the last guideline, the seventh one, uh, was published in 2002. This one's called the 2014 Evidence-Based Guideline for the Management of High Blood Pressure in Adults by the 8th Joint National Committee on Hypertension. It concentrates on outpatient management and not ED management. I think it's important to look at these guidelines because I think it's important to know how to counsel our patients. Dr. Yaffe, could you just review for us what the key recommendations of this hot off the press guideline is? Sure. So the important thing that they said is that we think that uh, we can move from the older guidelines, which I think were about 140 over 90, to um, if the person was over 60, you didn't have to treat blood pressure uh, unless uh, systolic was greater than 150, diastolic greater than 90. 
um, which is a bit of a difference from before. And they said this is a grade A recommendation. At the end of the day, they probably made the recommendations for everybody, but the, the strength of evidence for people less than 50 was a little weaker. So their feeling was maybe over-aggressive blood pressure treatment in the elderly population might come at a bit of a cost, and we can be a little bit more permissive. Now, this doesn't have a lot of applicability to us in the eMERGE, except to say that maybe we need to remember that we can do harm by lowering blood pressure as well. And actually, interestingly, the ESC also, the European guidelines, came out in 2013, and they go even higher. So for elderly patients who are less than 80, they don't say what the lower cutoff is, but presumably about 60. They say that if they have a pressure of 160 over 100, then you should treat, but not before. And you should try and get the systolic to between 140 and 150. So they're even more permissive. Yet the Canadian guidelines, the CHEP guidelines, say that if you're over over 80, then your uh, goal should be, or you should be starting at 150 over 90, same as the Americans. But remember, the Americans are, are saying for someone over the age of 60. CHEP guidelines, the Canadians are saying for someone over the age of 80, the new um, cutoff is 150 over 90. Uh, if you're under 80, it's uh, 140 over 90, just like before. So there's clearly no consensus. Okay, suffice to say that it, it looks like the guidelines are tending to raise the cutoff at which we should be treating blood pressure. And again, I think, you know, the important message here, really for me, is that people are starting to recognize that there are situations where you're going to do more harm in lowering blood pressure than leaving it where it is. And I think that and there, might take there really message. isn't great evidence to show in older patients that they should be that low. There's a few studies that, that get elderly patients to below 140. And, you know, based on the benefits compared to the risks that Joel just outlined, it's, it's not worth it. Now that we've gone over the guidelines for outpatients and the screening tests, the next most important question that comes up is, does ED medical intervention reduce rates of adverse outcomes in patients with asymptomatic hypertension? Should we be treating patients with asymptomatic hypertension in the ED or simply have them follow up with their primary care provider? So I think this is a great question, and I would love to do the research, and I'm hoping to do the research to actually answer that. But right now, there's very limited data on, on long-term outcomes, which is really what we need to focus on, and whether or not those are affected by if we start patients in the emergency department on some kind of antihypertensive. Now, the ASEP clinical policy from 2013 clearly states that in patients with asymptomatic, markedly elevated blood pressure, routine ED medical intervention is not required. Can you say that again? Probably not. Um, But they do make the concession that in select patients, again, with poor follow-up, emergency physicians may treat markedly elevated blood pressure in the ED and or initiate therapy for long-term control. So basically, you're clear to do whatever you feel clinically is warranted. Uh, You've got the ASAP guidelines backing you up in case anything ever went awry and you had to stand up and say why you did it. 
Um, they based these decisions on a couple of studies. One of them was by Grassi in 2008 uh, in the Journal of Clinical Hypertension. And they looked at a wait-then-treat approach in 549 asymptomatic ED patients uh, with a blood pressure over 180 systolic or 110 diastolic. And what they did was they enrolled them, looked at their blood pressure 30 minutes later after they'd had a period of quiet rest and found that 32% of them dropped below the cutoff of 180 over 110 just by sitting quietly in that half an hour. And so they didn't do anything to those patients. For the patients who stayed above, they started some intervention with one of three antihypertensive agents that were on the list of the ones you can use. It made no difference which which um, antihypertensive you chose, but most of them uh, came down in their blood pressure below 180 over 110, uh, with the exception of 14%, which they then said, we're going to give you some personalized treatment and follow-up. Then they followed them for 48 to 72 hours to see whether or not any of them had any bad outcomes, which is completely the wrong outcome measure in my mind. I don't expect, and this proves it, which I suppose is good, but I don't expect anyone to have a bad outcome whether or not you treat them within 48 to 72 hours. We know that hypertension is a chronic disease. We tell our patients it doesn't matter today that you have it or next week or or in a month. What matters in five years' time when you increase your risk of of aortic dissection and AMI and stroke and all these other things, AFib. So looking at such a short-term outcome, I think is is not particularly helpful, although I guess it is reassuring that even whichever you choose to do, at least in the next three days, nothing bad is going to happen to your patient because of what you did. One other study has looked long-term, and it's from 1967. I was not born in 1967, but it's a great study. It's just that I'm not sure if it's still applicable. It was in JAMA, and they looked at, um, it was a VA trial at a, of 143 male patients. I guess that's the only patients they bothered to do um, trials on back in that time. Just <laughs> throwing that out there. Anyway, their diastolic was between 115 and 130 uh, millimeters of mercury uh, when they got enrolled. And they looked at what happened to them, whether or not they did nothing, and then compared to those who, patients who got treatment for their um, elevated blood pressure. And they actually looked several months down the road. So they looked at three months and found there was no difference between the two groups. But by four months, 6% of the patients in the placebo group who got nothing, compared to none in the treatment group, had developed significant complications, including sudden death, a ruptured aortic aneurysm, and severely uh, elevated BUN and congestive heart failure. They also looked within 20 months, which is fantastic, 20 months down the road, and they found that 39% of the placebo patients, compared to only 3% of the patients who got treatment in the ED, had experienced adverse events. So that's a big difference if you were in the group uh, who didn't get treatment. And yeah, number and, needed a treat of three. Yeah, and it's they were amazing, randomized. Yeah. So, But mind you, it was back in 1967 on a very specific cohort. But it does bring up the idea that there is the potential that we could affect outcomes. There is the potential. And to my mind as a researcher, I think, and this is just my hypothesis, that if we look at AFib patients, when we start warfarin, which is a similar idea, I think it suggests to the family doctor that probably this patient should be on an anticoagulant. And I suspect, I have no proof of this whatsoever, and I really want to do this study, and I'm looking into it, that that makes the patient more likely to be on warfarin, say, in a year's time. Hypertension patients, I'm not sure if it would be the same way because I feel like family doctors, hypertension is their domain. They know what they're doing. But I wonder if perhaps 
the patient themselves seeing that two doctors, not just their family doctor, but an emergency doctor started to be on uh, an antihypertensive makes them more likely to be on it in a year or two years' time. And I have no idea what the answer is, but I would really like to, to look into it. And I wonder if perhaps if the notion that we are starting them makes them more likely for them to stay on it, and that's what we need. Having practiced family medicine for five years, the experience that I had was when patients came from the emergency department started on a new medication, certainly there's some momentum there that if they're started on something, uh, that they'll continue it. Whether that in the long run is a good or bad thing, I'm not so sure. <laughs> we need that study. Uh, but in the emergency department, if you're, if you're pretty sure that this patient is chronically hypertensive and they aren't on any medication, and you could discuss with them you know, has your family doctor addressed this? If their family doctor hasn't, then maybe that's a, a golden opportunity for you to then start them on something that and send the doctor a no, their family doctor a note. That might be the thing that prevents their stroke. So as usual, I have to take a bit of a dissenting opinion. Um, first of all, Claire, I, I think the VA study didn't look at emergency department treatment versus placebo. I think it was treatment versus no treatment in a longitudinal population. So they said, if you didn't treat people, bad stuff happened over the longer they went untreated. But in the short run, there didn't seem to be a huge issue, like in the first few months. So I look at this study, and I know that some people had some concerns with it, but least of all the, the ethical ones. But uh, <laughs> I, I look at this study as, again, giving us permission not to treat. I have a little bit of a different take on the, the relationship with the family physician. You know, in anticoagulation, it's kind of a binary decision. You're going to treat or you're not going to treat, although there's some decision as, as to which drug. When you're treating hypertension, and we're going to come into this, there's a huge range of drugs that the person needs could be started on. And it's not just drug or no drug, it's drug and titrate the drug. So the family physician, the primary, whoever's going to be the primary caregiver, needs to feel comfortable with the drug regimen. Um, and I think for this to work, they need to feel comfortable taking some ownership on the management. So my take would be this is a chronic problem. Uh, there's not a short-term issue. And yes, I would send the letter to the family doctor, but I think I would leave it up to the family physician in most cases to make the decision which drug and how they want to manage it and where they want to go from there. And that's a perfectly legitimate approach because there is no real evidence to go either way. Um, I do say to patients who I start on something that the family doctor may be more comfortable with something else and they may change the, the drug, but you need to stay on it, whatever it is. It's great when there's no evidence. Oh, we can all be right all the time. <laughs> Group hug. So let's do a review of asymptomatic hypertension here. In terms of definitions and categorization of high blood pressure in the ED, the easiest way to think about it is the true hypertensive emergencies and then everything else. A true hypertensive emergency can be defined by asking three questions. One, is there acute end organ damage? Two, is the dysfunction attributable to the elevated BP or is the elevated BP going to make dysfunction worse? And three, is alteration of the BP necessary to improve or prevent the worsening of symptoms? 
For patients who present with elevated blood pressure, a repeat blood pressure at about one hour that is still high will very likely mean that the patient has essential hypertension that requires treatment as an outpatient. And remember that the new JNC and Canadian guidelines suggest that essential hypertension should only be treated in elderly patients who have a blood pressure of over 150 on 90 rather than the old 140 on 90. What about the history and physical when it comes to the patient with asymptomatic hypertension in your ED? The questions you should be asking are, is the patient known to have a history of hypertension and are they compliant with their medications? Are there any triggers like a high salt meal they just had or alcohol or NSAID use? Are they pregnant or postpartum? Then you need to think about the head to toe questions. Ask about headache, nausea, vomiting, confusion, visual symptoms, and localizing neurologic symptoms, searching for any CNS effects of the high blood pressure. Next, move down to the heart, ask for CHF symptoms, ACS symptoms, and lastly, down to the kidneys, where you want to ask about urinary symptoms. Think about some of the secondary causes if patients are under 30 with a very high blood pressure, things like renal artery stenosis, so listen for abdominal bruise or Cushing syndrome in obese patients with striae. Take a good look at the fundi for papilledema, hemorrhages, and exudates. Use a pen optic if you have one, and using a bedside ultrasound to measure optic nerve diameter is a tool you can use to predict raised ICP. Next is the workup. What's the utility of doing a workup on asymptomatic hypertensive patients? The ASEP guidelines suggest that you don't have to do any workup except that the studies that they draw from do show about a 6 or 7% rate of significant clinical, meaningful, unexpected findings on workup. So you should probably consider doing at least a urine dip, which has about an 80 to 90% sensitivity for renal dysfunction. You're looking for protein in blood. Or, in addition to the dip, you can get a creatinine for patients who might have poor follow-up, for example. And consider doing an ECG for patients who you suspect have had long-standing hypertension and never had an ECG before, as many of these patients will have LVH and should probably get an echo and be treated. The next question in the asymptomatic hypertensive is should we be treating these patients in the ED? Does it affect outcomes? The ASEP guidelines say basically that it's up to you. You can choose to treat them or not to treat them. Treating these patients won't make a difference to their outcome in the short term, but in the long term, there is some moderate evidence that patients with high blood pressure in the ED that are left untreated will have an increased risk of nasty morbidity and mortality at 4 and 20 months with a number needed to treat of 3. Next, we're going to move on to a patient with severe hypertension and vague symptoms. Case number two. Your resident presents you a case of a 50-year-old woman with a known history of hypertension who presents to the ED with a gradual onset, bitemporal, vague headache, and fatigue for two days. She's been non-compliant with her antihypertensive medications in the last six months and does not remember their names. On exam, her blood pressure is 212 over 120. Her vitals are otherwise normal, and her cardiovascular and neurologic exams are unremarkable. Your resident asks you what kind of workup they should do and what medication they should give to lower her blood pressure. So Dr. Yaffe, in the first case we presented, it was a patient with high blood pressure in the ED with no symptoms. 
But what about the patient who presents with high blood pressure, who has a low-grade headache, like in this case, or vague dizziness or generalized weakness? You know, we see these patients all the time. Are these patients treated differently to the asymptomatic patient? In other words, does the headache in this case change the way you approach these patients? Do they need a workup? Do they require antihypertensives in the ED? Let's start with whether or not these symptoms change the way you approach these patients. So I'll give you my usual definitive answer, which is it depends. Um, you know, there there's some literature. Uh, Karis has a paper, and there's a paper by Krasuski, which show that if you have a person who's got vague symptomatology and hypertension, treating their hypertension probably doesn't fix their symptoms and is not necessary to fix their, their symptoms. So if somebody comes in and has a headache and you've taken a history and they're hypertensive, but the clinical picture is suggestive of a tension headache, then treat the headache, don't treat the blood pressure. Similarly for vague dizziness. But uh, if somebody has worrisome symptoms, I mean, a headache can be a symptom of an intracranial bleed, symptom of raised ICP, uh, vertigo can be symptoms of a, of a stroke or a bleed. So you have to take the hypertension in the context of what the symptoms are telling you. So, you know, the bottom line is don't treat pressure as a way of fixing vague symptomatology. Now, I, I just want to make a distinction between people who present with pretty vague symptoms who we feel are well, and we would not necessarily want to go after the blood pressure. You know, other symptoms might be more concerning. So if somebody presents with shortness of breath and is significantly hypertensive, uh, we'd want to take a very close look at that to see how those relate. And in fact, that might require treatment of the blood pressure, depending on what was causing the shortness of breath. Let's move on to if you do decide to treat the blood pressure in the emergency department. Is there a particular blood pressure target that you're going for before you discharge the patient or have them admitted? There's no evidence that supports either a threshold blood pressure that warrants treatment or a target blood pressure to be achieved before discharge. So the, the shorter answer is there's not really a level that you should be going for. Okay. Yeah, it's often tempting to give a patient some nitroglycerin or some clonidine or hydralazine or nifedipine to quickly decrease their blood pressure in the ED and make the numbers look better. Dr. Yaffe, what's your take on this practice? Is there a danger in quickly lowering the blood pressure in the ED for patients who don't have a true hypertensive emergency? Sure. There's both uh, theoretical and practical reasons not to do this. So I did my training in an era when people used to come in and we, I trained in the U.S. and we had a lot of uh, disenfranchised, very hypertensive patients uh, who we'd sit on the bench and give sublingual nifedipine to and their pressures came down nicely. I think we were lucky because I never saw anybody stroke, but subsequently people's experience is that the, this kind of acute, rapid blood pressure lowering strategy puts people at risk for strokes. And, you know, I think we've all seen that cerebral autoregulation curve, which really says to us that if you're chronically hypertensive, you need a higher pressure to perfuse your brain. And so that if you drop your pressure to normal levels, uh, you can underperfuse critical areas of the brain and you can stroke. So th this is not something that's advocated. So no rapid blood pressure lowering strategies. 
And can I add that that's probably to any organ. If you have a chronic hypertensive patient, their uh, vasculature is going to be very hypertrophied. There's a lot of smooth muscle development in their vasculature, and they need those high pressures in order to get enough uh, blood flow to the uh, rest of the vasculature. And if you drop their blood pressure too low to any organ, if they're pregnant and and you drop someone with preeclampsia too low, then they're not going to get enough blood supply to the fetus. It could be to your kidneys, to any organ if you drop it too far. Okay, so there's definitely a danger in starting a potent IV or oral antihypertensive in the ED for asymptomatic chronic hypertensives. What's your take on whether or not to start one of the usual oral antihypertensives like hydrochlorothiazide, for example, in patients with asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients with severely elevated blood pressure to go home on? Dr. Atsuma? Well, we know from the ASEP guidelines that you certainly do not have to, and it's your choice as the managing physician. You know, there's that study that I mentioned earlier, the Grassi study, which looked at at what happens to patients who they drop the blood pressure if the pressure stays over 180, over 110 after 30 minutes of sitting still, and they followed them for three days and found that there was no adverse events associated with that. And I wouldn't expect there to be in such a short term. For me personally, I usually do treat patients who I think are so high in their blood pressure after, not the triage blood pressure, but after they've been in the department for a while and they've been sitting with a a cuff on their arm for a little while and it's staying, you know, in the 200 range or higher, I do usually start something, but that's a personal choice and maybe it's just my personality type that likes to do something. But basically what I think, once I have ruled out any end organ damage and that this is an emergency in any way, I'm playing the role of the family doctor, to my mind. And I think, well, what do they do? They don't give patients something and make them stay for three hours. Methyl dopa takes five hours to kick in and see if it works or how low it's going to go. I choose something based on my knowledge because I do know what the recommendations are for most patients to start them on an antihypertensive or to increase a dose if they're already on something. And so given that I know it, it's relatively easy for me, and I do usually start them on something. I do not hold them in the emergency. I give them a script. Or maybe I'll give them the first dose, kind of depends on my day and how busy the emerge is and, and whether or not it's nighttime and they're old and they can't get to a pharmacy in a long time. But there's certainly no need to do that. And that's just my personal choice that I, I do do that. And as I say, I don't hold on to them. And I, of course, ensure that they get follow-up. So while the ASEP 2013 guidelines clearly state that you do not need to initiate uh, interventions in these patients, start an antihypertensive. Other groups, you know, come out on a different platform, and EMCREG, or the Emergency Medicine Cardiac Research Education Group, which published, I believe, in Annals in 2008, they recommend that you should consider oral antihypertensive therapy for patients with a blood pressure over 180, over 110, and initiate therapy rather than just consider it, in those with a blood pressure of 200 over 130. Again, it's just a recommendation. The evidence is not there. It's grade C at best. And in fact, one of the residents that I work with, Dr. Dennis Cho, actually surveyed emergency physicians in the GTA. I believe it was three academic sites and four community sites. And he asked them if you have a threshold for which you would start an antihypertensive or increase uh, a dose. And 50% of the respondents said yes, and 50% of your colleagues said no. So it's really 50-50, and you can do whichever you know you choose, of course, based on the patient who's in front of you and your clinical acumen, and most importantly, that you get follow-up for that patient. So Dr. Atzma, if you do send home a patient on an oral antihypertensive, or you start one in the emergency 
department, what are the agents of choice and why? What are some of the things you need to consider when trying to decide which medication to start? So the recommendations have changed since what you had previously memorized. In someone with no risk factors at all, you can pretty much choose whatever you like, and hydrochlorothiazide and calcium channel blockers are right up there. I feel like I used to give out a lot of beta blockers because in the JNC7, those were right up there. But in fact, beta blockers have pretty much been minimized uh, to one group, and that is those who've had an MI in the past or a recent MI and those who have angina. So beta blockers, that's the specific group I use them in. Then I also have one other group. Those are uh, black patients. And for some reason, the studies clearly show that certain drugs work much better in them at preventing um, cardiovascular events and death. And for those patients, they should be getting hydrochlorothiazide or calcium channel blockers. Other than those two groups who get the beta blockers and black patients, really you're safe to use an ACE inhibitor or an ARB in everyone else. And for simplicity's sake, that's what I memorize and have committed to memory based on the ESC guidelines as well as uh, some of the JNC and the CHEP guidelines, the Canadian guidelines. So if you have a patient with diabetes, if you have a patient with renal failure, if you have a patient with uh, left ventricular hypertrophy, a patient with congestive heart failure, a patient with nothing, you can start with an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. Now, again, if I do start something, I say to them, your family doctor may choose something else because they know a lot more about managing chronic hypertension than I do, but this is what I'm going to start with and you need to be on something. So just for simplicity's sake, I say ACE and ARB for everyone except for black patients and those beta blocker groups, uh, angina and post AMI patients. I agree with Claire. Largely, I have to say that I tend to start the uncomplicated patients on a thiazide because I think the evidence base for reduction of adverse events is a little bit better, but but I think the prevailing opinion in the practice is that people pick a whole host of medications to start with. So no one or two and a few different indications and know how they work and how they don't work and recognize that maybe the primary provider might have some different ideas. You need to know your drugs and you need to know reasons not to give them. So in general, we shouldn't be combining ACE and ARBs. Uh, We shouldn't be giving either of them in patients with hyperkalemia. You wouldn't want to give a thiazide to somebody uh, who has hypokalemia. Uh, You don't want to combine diuretics. So there's a a bit to look at here. Um, If they have gout, no If they have gout, no thiazides, right? So let's review the medications that you might want to give a patient who comes to the emergency department with elevated blood pressure that you're going to send them home on. While hydrochlorothiazide may have a slight edge on the other antihypertensives in terms of long-term outcome data, the guidelines suggest that generally a thiazide or an ACE inhibitor or ARB or calcium channel blocker are all reasonable to start with, except for two groups. One, black patients where a thiazide or a calcium channel blocker are preferred, and two, patients with coronary artery disease where a beta blocker is preferred. Often your decision is based on contraindications for that particular drug. So for example, with hydrochlorothiazide, you want to avoid it if your patient is hypokalemic or hyponatremic or if they're already on Lasix or if they have a history of gout. You don't want to use ACE inhibitors or ARBs if the patient is hyperkalemic and you do need to ensure that they have follow-up in one to two weeks to repeat their electrolytes. Remember that ACE inhibitors and ARBs should never be combined. And of course, for beta blockers, we should avoid them in patients with severe asthma or COPD or in healthy young people with a low resting heart rate. 
The advantage of calcium channel blockers in the ED is that you don't have to know the creatinine or the lights before you start them. Whereas with ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and thiazide diuretics, you need a basic metabolic panel to be sure that they don't have any significant electrolyte abnormalities. Next, we're going to talk about how to follow up patients who you've discharged from the emergency department with high blood pressure. Dr. Atsuma, uh, Dr. Yaffe had mentioned how important it is to have patients followed up properly. What kind of follow-up for patients with asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic severely elevated blood pressure do you recommend? So this has never been studied in any published literature. And actually, uh, Dr. Cho, Dennis Cho, who's a resident in emergency medicine at U of T, did this as part of the survey of seven sites and their rounds at community and academic sites. And he asked them, what do you tell your patients? Because we don't know, we don't have evidence for if you get seen within three days versus within three months, whether or not that affects outcomes. So with the lack of evidence, you can turn to your peers and ask, well, what are my peers doing? It's sort of the next best thing. And he found that in general, most people say within seven days, that's what they tell their patients. And that's altered by the number of comorbidities the patient has and by how high the blood pressure was when they left the emergency room. So if the blood pressure was higher, say 200 over 110, and they had uh, CHF as well as diabetes, they were more likely to say within three days was sort of the the lower end. Whereas if they had no other uh, comorbidities and the blood pressure was a bit on the lower side, they would say up to seven days. On the other hand, if you look at the CHEP guidelines, which are the... um, Canadian guidelines, CHEP guidelines, they actually say that if a patient has a very high blood pressure on the first visit, the family doctor needs to reschedule another visit to recheck that blood pressure within one month. So I know we're all saying within seven days, and that's what we feel comfortable with, and I personally am comfortable with that and wouldn't say within 30 days, but you know, there's other guidelines out there which say, well, if the patient's you know, over 180, over 110, make sure you get a second appointment within a month, just to give a bit of perspective. One little point about that is if you are starting someone on an ACE or an ARB, for example, you want to get the potassium checked in about a week. So for patients who you're starting on an ACE, you want to have them follow up in a week. A month would be too long. Let's do a wrap-up of the entire first part of this episode. A true hypertensive emergency can be defined by three questions. One, is there acute end-organ damage? Two, is the dysfunction attributable to the elevated BP, or is the elevated BP going to make the dysfunction worse? And three, is alteration of the BP necessary to improve or prevent the worsening symptoms? If the answer to these three questions is yes then you have a hypertensive emergency on your hands. Then there's everyone else who may have no symptoms, may have vague symptoms, or symptoms of a serious disease, but that doesn't fit the definition of hypertensive emergency. All these patients should be approached on an individual basis. For patients who present to triage with an elevated BP, a repeat BP at about one hour that is still high will likely mean that the patient has essential hypertension that requires treatment as an outpatient. And remember that the definition of essential hypertension has changed. The JNC and Canadian guidelines suggest that essential hypertension should only be treated in elderly patients who have a BP over 150 on 90 rather than 140 on 90 in the outpatient setting. 
In terms of the history and physical, usually the patient's chief complaint will guide your search. But for patients with elevated BP who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, you should ask about a few key things. First, is the patient known to have a history of hypertension and are they compliant with their medications? Are there any triggers like a recent high salt meal, alcohol use, or NSAID use? Are they pregnant or postpartum? Remember, you don't want to miss a postpartum preeclampsia. Then there's the head-to-toe questions, looking for any evidence of end-organ damage. Headache, nausea, vomiting, confusion, visual symptoms, and neurologic localizing symptoms for CNS or retinal damage. Look for CHF symptoms and ACS symptoms for cardiac and urinary symptoms for kidney. Think about some of the secondary causes if patients are under 30 with a very high blood pressure, like renal artery stenosis, for example. And think about Cushing syndrome in obese patients with striae. Take a good look at the fundi for papilledema, hemorrhages, and exudates. Use a pen optic if you have one, and using a bedside ultrasound for optic nerve diameter can help to predict raised ICP. Remember that once you've ruled out serious disease from your history and physical, the patient with vague symptoms and hypertension in the ED should be approached the same way as patients who are totally asymptomatic. What about working up these patients? What's the utility of doing a workup on asymptomatic hypertensive patients? The ASEP guidelines suggest that you don't have to do any workup, except that the studies that they draw from show about a 6 or 7% rate of significant, clinically meaningful, unexpected findings on workup. So you might want to consider doing a urine dip, which has about an 80 to 90% sensitivity for renal dysfunction. And if you find protein in blood, you go onto a creatinine and work them up from there. Or rather than doing just a urine dip, you could choose to do a creatinine from the start, especially for patients who you suspect have long-standing hypertension who might have poor follow-up. Occasionally, you'll be surprised to see a severely elevated creatinine requiring admission. And while the yield is predictably low, consider doing an ECG for patients who you suspect have long-standing hypertension and never had an ECG before, as many of these patients will have LVH and should probably get an echo and be treated. The next question is, should we be treating patients in the ED for asymptomatic hypertension? Does it affect outcomes? Well, the ASEP guidelines say basically that it's up to you. You can choose to treat them or not treat them because there's no great evidence that it affects outcomes in the short term. But in the long term, there's some evidence that patients with high blood pressure in the ED that are left untreated will have an increased risk of morbidity and mortality at 4 and 20 months with a number needed to treat of only 3. So whether or not you decide to treat patients in the emergency department, it is important to have close follow-up and make sure these patients are seen in a timely manner. Remember that dropping the blood pressure in the ED precipitously with potent IV or oral antihypertensives is a no-no because you can mess with the patient's cerebral autoregulation curve and cause a stroke or ischemia in other vital organs. If you do start patients in the ED on one of the outpatient oral antihypertensives, you don't need to watch them in the ED. You can send them home with the script. While hydrochlorothiazide has a slight edge in terms of outcome data over the other antihypertensives, most patients can be started on either a thiazide or a calcium channel blocker or an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. However, for patients with coronary artery disease, a beta blocker is the antihypertensive of choice, 
And for black patients, a thiazide or a calcium channel blocker are the antihypertensives of choice. Follow-up is key for these patients because if you're going to make an impact on your hypertensive patient's health, it will be ensuring that they are followed and treated carefully over the long run. While the Canadian CHEP guidelines say that a one-month follow-up is adequate, most ED docs suggest follow-up within one week, especially if you're starting a patient on an ACE inhibitor, since they should be screened for hyperkalemia about a week after they start the ACE inhibitor. In the end, much of what you do with your patient in the ED with elevated blood pressure depends on your philosophy of who should take responsibility for the health of your patient in general. We know that asymptomatic hypertension is not an emergency and that the guidelines have allowed us to skip any workup or treatment for these patients and just make sure that they have adequate follow-up. But if you believe that we as ER docs should advocate for our patient's health beyond the walls of the ED, then perhaps we should be a bit more proactive in assessing and treating patients in the ED with elevated blood pressure. We'd love to hear your opinions on this controversial topic, so please visit us on Twitter. The address is at EMCases, that's at capital E, capital M, capital C, lowercase a-s-e-s, or leave a comment on the EMCases website on the episode page. In the second part of our discussion on hypertension in the ED, we'll be talking about hypertensive emergencies. So until next time, take it easy.